0: Gather together in this way, just as I was sitting down to record this, a little rainstorm went through, but I am dry on my porch and I think we might be able to get through it uh, before there's any thunder or anything else going on. And it's just kind of a lovely day out here right now, even with the rain falling. So I hope that as you join us, whether you are joining us in person at the church or whether you're joining us online, uh, that you'll find this time in God's Word profitable as we are able to gather on the Lord's Day and to worship him and to learn from him. Last week we began unpacking the turning point event in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16. And Jesus was pressing in on his identity with the disciples. And for the first time being acknowledged in a meaningful way, in a fundamental way, is revealed by the Father as the Messiah. And this is also the first time that Jesus begins to talk about the church, or the ecclesia, or the new assembly of people called out of the world and identifying with Jesus. He had never talked about the church before, but even as he's identified as the Messiah, as the Son of God, he then begins to talk about the church, the gathering that he is going to build. And first of all, we notice that Jesus actually had come to build a church. Since he'd never mentioned it before, it wasn't obvious that this was his purpose. And that's exciting to us because it means that Jesus is not merely saving individuals and then moving on to another. But as we are saved, we are gathered together and we are called out as an assembly. And we are to identify with Christ together. So it was exciting to learn that Jesus is actually in the process of building a church and came for that purpose. And then we were encouraged to learn that it is Jesus who is building it. It's not by our natural strength that Jesus expects us to accomplish church building but he's the supernatural builder of the church. And he started with just 12 people, and then all the apostles, but especially Peter, watched the church grow into the hundreds of thousands just in his lifetime, just in a few decades. And we know that from then, the church has continued on for 2000 years, just as Jesus said it would, and includes hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people. And then we learned that the bedrock of the church, the foundation on which it is built is Christ himself. And the church is built out of all of those who like Peter identify with Jesus as the Messiah, identify Jesus as the anointed eternal King who is the Son of God. The church is built out of living stones, people cemented together by Christ and their acknowledgement of him as the Son of God. And it's on that rock of Jesus as Messiah That we can build fellowship with other believers and we can build unity with other churches and we can build partnerships and associations with other gatherings or ecclesia of believers. And at the same time, as that allows us to build relationships with other believers and build partnerships and fellowship with other churches, that identification of Christ as Messiah also sets a boundary of those that we cannot have fellowship with, that we cannot build a foundation of understanding with because they do not believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he is the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. And so far that's what we have from about two and a half sentences from Peter and Jesus. What is being built, who's building it, what it's built on, and what is being built of. But there's a little bit more that we can slow down here and see in this text and consider in the final sentence and a half that Jesus and Peter exchange. Jesus is going to go on to tell us where he is building his church and how he's going to get it built. And I was hoping to cover both of those points in this message today, but I discovered that the Bible actually has plenty to say just about the first one. So today we're just going to look at where Jesus is building his church and we'll unpack how he's doing it next week. But there is encouragement and application for us even in understanding better where it is that we are being built as a church. It helps us to understand why we see what we see in history and even what we see in the world today and how it affects us as the church occupies this strange place in the culture but not of the culture. Why is the church always alien to its surroundings and why does the church always operate differently than expected? So let's pray and then consider God's word and see where Jesus is building his church. Father God, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you that we can slow down at this turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. And this point where Jesus begins to explain what his plan is for the church and how he's doing it. So Father, help us as his church to have our eyes opened, our minds opened, our hearts opened to what the Holy Spirit would teach us today. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm just going to... Go back to Matthew sixteen, thirteen to twenty three, and we'll reread this portion of the text to just uh, get our minds back into this event. It says When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered. "'You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God.' And Jesus replied, "'Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, "'for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, "'but by my Father in heaven. "'And I tell you that you are Peter, "'and on this rock I will build my church, "'and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. "'I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. "'Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, "'and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven.' And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah." So our key phrase today from this text is, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what we immediately learn as Jesus describes the fact that he is building a church and he's building it on a rock, we learn that he is building the church in enemy occupied territory. That's where the church is built. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so we learn here that Jesus is always building his church in the face of fierce opposition and even aggression. The church Jesus intends to build will be built while engaged at the front ranks of the enemy. The gates of Hades will be up against the church. And there's a real sense at this point in the gospel in which we see the first promise made to Eve in Genesis now being fully realized, that this was a conflict all along. Remember way back literally in the beginning, Our enemy, the devil, comes to deceive Adam and Eve and they doubt the word of God and they desire to be like God themselves. And then God curses the serpent. He says this to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, singular, he, the offspring of Eve, will crush your head even as you strike at his heel. So the offspring of Eve and the powers of Satan are going to be in conflict until a promised seed, a promised son would finally crush the head of our enemy even as he himself is struck and bruised on his heel. Now that the promised offspring has come, the opposition and the aggression against him and his church is escalated. And this is the environment in which the church is built and in which the church exists. The church is built in the midst of this conflict between our enemy and ourselves. Says the gates of Hades. Gates, let's consider this word gates. For a long time when I was younger, I thought this was a funny way to phrase or picture the battle between the church and the enemy of the world. I thought it should be described as an army that wouldn't overcome the church or something. But to use the word gates here makes a great deal of sense for us and for Jesus in at least three ways. First of all, you've probably heard this before, but maybe you haven't. It's because the church is on enemy ground, not the powers of hell. They are on their own turf for the time being. It's the church that is built in their territory. The church is the army, and we are taking the battle to the enemy. And so it is the church that is assailing the gates of Hades. After reading the Lord of the Rings several times and eventually discerning the very many metaphors of the christian life and the gospel that tolkien wrote into his story i cannot help anymore when i read this verse now think of the final confrontation between gondor and mordor with aragorn rallying the last of the men dwarves and elves outside the massive gates of mordor which seem impenetrable with the power of sauron the power of death and darkness contained within those gates and yet as you know the gates of mordor did not prevail and that's a modern picture, a modern image of what Jesus is portraying to his disciples. We are built and standing on enemy ground, but it is a defensive battle that the enemy is waging. And as we will see, especially next week, he's doomed to defeat. Secondly, this word gates makes sense because gates are regularly understood in Jewish culture and throughout scripture as the seat or location of authority, of wisdom, and of decision making. And so by using the idea of the gates of Hades, Jesus not only brings us up an image of a church facing a fortified enemy, but also a church facing the combined intelligence and craftiness of that enemy. The opposition to the church is organized and deliberate. We face a strategic aggression against the church and we see this understanding of the word gates basically from cover to cover in the old testament in genesis 34:20 Hamor and Shechem speak to the elders at the city gate in deuteronomy 21:19 a rebellious person is brought to the city gates for trial in joshua 20 you consult the elders at the gate in order to gain entrance in ruth 4:11 boaz goes and does business at the city gate for the elders to witness in Proverbs 31:23, the glory of a wife's, um, the, the joy of a wife is that her husband is well known at the city gates, and so you just have these references over and over and over again of the importance of the city gates as the seat of eldership, the seat of wisdom, the seat of decision making, of strategy, and so Jesus is saying here at one level. The combined leadership and authority and wisdom of Hades will not prevail against the steady forward progression of the church. Despite the authorities and powers at the gates, Hades will not be able to thwart the building of my church, Jesus says to his disciples. And Paul reminds the church of this in his letter to the Ephesians, which is really the definitive book on church building in the New Testament. In Ephesians 6.12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And those powers and those authorities, figuratively, would be sitting at the gates of Hades, at the city gates of hell. And then thirdly, this word gates makes sense, which we'll expand on next week. These are the gates of Hades, the gates of death. They represent the ways in which the power of darkness seeks to intimidate us as the church, seek to threaten us. The ultimate aggressor is the one who rules in the gates of Hades. The ultimate aggressor against the church is the devil. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five to 27, Paul says, For he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. And next week we're going to consider the reality that Jesus has already entered into these gates, and he has been on the other side of the gates of Hades. He's defeated the enemy and returned alive forevermore, and he holds the keys to these gates. Now Jesus says that these gates will not overcome or they will not prevail. The verb used in Matthew 16 here for overcome or prevail is the same verb that's used later in Luke's gospel. At the time of Jesus' trial, Pilate could find no wrong in Jesus to hold him or punish him. And he insisted with the people of Israel three times that Jesus be set free. But every time Pilate insisted on Jesus' innocence, the crowds kept on shouting, crucify him, And at that point in the narrative, Luke uses exactly the same verb as Matthew uses here, when he says the shouts of those to crucify him prevailed, or they overcame. Says they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. This idea of prevailing, that the gates of hell will not prevail is important. That scene is almost a living parable of what is taking place when Jesus builds his church. There are always two forces at work, one force that works to build the church, but then also the force of opposition seeking to prevail against the church, that seeks to destroy the church, that seeks to tear it down. And we see that. We see the resistance to the church. And Jesus says to his tiny band of disciples in their weakness, he says, not only am I going to build my church, but I will defend it in such a way that the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it. The way those shouts did prevail to send me to the cross. And there's a reason for that, which again we'll unpack next week. And those words of Jesus, that the gates of Hades would not prevail, proved true. They were immediately fulfilled when Peter preached in Jerusalem. And the church began to be built up from people from many different nations and many different tongues and locations around the world. And in response there was immediately opposition to Peter's building of the church. Peter and John are dragged before the council and then they are imprisoned. But then as the people prayed, God set them free so that the church could continue to be built again. And this theme of conflict continues. As the church makes progress, it is oppressed through the whole New Testament. Before Paul was Paul even, he was called Saul. And he was a great enemy of the church, binding and imprisoning Christians. Nero burned Christians as torches in his gardens. Septimus and Trajan continued to crucify Christians for decades. It was more than 250 years before it was even legal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire under Constantine. But that has not ended the oppression. In nation after nation throughout history and around the world, the normal stance of the culture towards the church is one of oppression and even aggression. In the 20th century, Supposedly the most enlightened and educated and tolerant in history, there were more martyrs for Jesus Christ, more Christians killed for their faith than in all the previous centuries put together. In places like India and Pakistan and Chad and the Sudan and Angola and the Middle East and North Korea, all of these places, the news still rolls in every week of whole churches being killed or destroyed, or pastors imprisoned and tortured, of Christians being scattered and persecuted. But the aggression is not always and only so deadly. Even in the freedom and safety that we temporarily enjoy, we only need to go into our own office or our own workplace to see this is true. Parents, we see it in the experience of our own children who seek who we seek to raise up in the knowledge of God and to express the love of God to others. We see the resistance against them from their peers. We see that it's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus, to belong to and identify with his ecclesia without discovering that you will only do so in the face of opposition from your friends and your colleagues and your peers, even your teachers and employers. Just mention the name of Jesus in love and trust rather than as a swear word and very often his name will stir up animosity. There's an application for this as the church in North America. As we come to understand this first time that Jesus speaks about his church, he says, I'm going to build it on enemy territory. The church is normally going to be built on enemy ground. As we come to recognize this is where Jesus builds his church, it raises some important questions for us as Christians. We must ask, and we have all asked to some degree, this question if we are believers. Is Jesus worth this to me? Is it worth the conflict in my family? Is it worth the opposition from my friends? Is it worth being singled out and counted as an enemy of our culture, as someone to be opposed? Is it worth having to stand contrary to the spirit of our age? Is Jesus worth it? And also, is the church worth it? Is the local fellowship worth it to me? Am I going to stand beside my brothers and sisters in unity and encouragement in this gathering, which Jesus has established, and recognize the importance of it in our community, that it cannot be taken lightly or optionally? Am I going to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters by staying in contact with them, by fellowshipping with them, by worshiping with them, by ministering alongside them? Is the church worth it to me? Am I going to face the discord and the enmity of our culture together with my brothers and sisters? Or am I just going to let Jesus and let the church go because it's just not worth it? I'm gonna borrow a few words here from John Piper in his analysis of this reality. He he says it so well in these few sentences. He says, the church in America is only slowly awakening from the distortion of about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. In most of our history until now, being a Christian has been viewed as normal, good, and culturally acceptable and beneficial. Being a Christian has generally meant things going well for you in the culture. The distortion of that dominance has created a deeply unbiblical mindset of at-homeness in the world. This is how Piper describes the problem that we have in the North American church. Unlike most of history and unlike almost any other nation on earth where most Christians are, we have experienced peace. We have experienced a odd sensation of being culturally accepted for most of the last 350 years. But that has started to change dramatically in the last couple decades. But what that's done is that the expectation of comfort cultivates this distortion or deception that the church is not on enemy territory. And the church has suffered from that assumption that we will be materially and culturally prosperous. We enjoy being thought well of and we enjoy not facing opposition. We expect ease because we've forgotten that Jesus builds his church on enemy territory. That history that we have has created in the Church of North America and in we Christians, a desire to be accepted by the culture rather than a desire that the culture accept the gospel. For the most part, we have a far greater eagerness now that we will be accepted in our relationship with Jesus, and we would mostly be content with that simply that we would be accepted rather than that the culture accept Jesus. Or put it one more way, would you give up approval by your social circle? Would you accept rejection if it meant in exchange that they would accept the gospel? For many Christians, and I include myself in that, we make decisions daily in which we reflexively choose acceptance in our social circle. We choose friendship with the world over the offense we would cause with the gospel. We keep it to ourselves. We say the right things in the right places. We use the right hashtags on our tweets. We certainly don't bring up Jesus or be so rude as to mention the sinfulness of our family or our peers or even ourselves. And so we find ourselves now in the aftermath of those 350 years of dominance, no longer the dominant culture. And we've suddenly discovered that we are, as the people of Israel were in Judges 3.2, We are now a generation who had never known war, and we need to be taught. We are weak and untrained after decades of prosperity. Cultural prosperity is not our friend, but our enemy. We need to learn how to build our lives in enemy territory once again. We need to learn from this scripture that the church is built at the gates of Hades, on enemy ground. The church is being built in hostile territory. We need to learn from Scripture and we need to learn from the saints around the world who live out this reality of their church being built in enemy territory every day. We should never, as Piper says, never ever want to be a domesticated, comfort-seeking, entertainment-addicted, prosperity-loving, security-craving, approval-desiring Christian. We are daily, despite appearances, living at the very front gates of Hades, and all the powers and all the collective intelligence and strategy of those powers are set against us. In the Old Testament, we have examples. In Moses, Moses chose to suffer with Christ and his people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season and the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, speaking of Moses says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He knew God was building the church. He knew God was building the assembly, the gathering of his people Israel through his life. And so Moses chose the reproach of Christ and treasured it more highly than Egypt. In the New Testament, Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, 29 to 30. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, this is a conflict that you're engaged in. It's one thing to believe in Christ. It's another thing to understand that you will suffer for his sake. Is the church worth persecution to you? Is it worth suffering for? Is it worth even the mild social discomfort of being known as a Christian, of presenting the gospel, of sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with your friends? Is the reward of Christ greater than the comfort of you being affirmed by your friends. I promised I would talk about COVID and the building up of the church, but what I want you to see here is that COVID is just a sample. It's a very small example of the kind of resistance a fallen world can put on the church being built. This is the environment that we're living in. Yes, it is a spiritual battle and there are all these forces against us, but we are also in a fallen world and both the curse of the world and the forces that are spiritual and powerful are also against us. COVID in North America is nothing at all like communism in North Korea. But after those 300 and some years of prosperity, I don't think we're a generation as a church that's ready for the kind of opposition that they have in North Korea. And so COVID is about all we can handle. And yet even the minor inconvenience of this virus is pressuring people's participation in church. We post on our Facebook pages that we can do all things in Christ Jesus who strengthens me, but often we can't even get ourselves to church if it's snowing outside or if we have to wear a mask. But before we get discouraged by the reality of the church being built in enemy territory, before we are discouraged by the forces that seem to be against the building of the church in North America today, whether it's the culture or COVID, let's just consider how COVID or how any opposition can be a blessing to the church. In North America, how it can even be a blessing to our church. How is opposition a blessing? How is COVID a blessing? First of all because it calls the bluff of the nominal Christian or nominal church. If church was only ever a convenient cultural thing for us and we evaporated at the least inconvenience, then our roots and our foundation are exposed. And so now in the midst of some small opposition and some small difficulty Either we will rise up to make disciples and start new ministries and plant churches and reach the lost just as we always have, or we will disappear. I don't mean that we all have to gather together in the church at the same time. I mean, we have to continue to set our lives in building the church and doing the ministry of the church and fellowshipping together in what means we are able. Or will we simply drift away? It's a blessing because it calls the bluff of the nominal Christian life. Secondly, COVID, or any opposition, produces instability and uncertainty that awakens us from the complacency and safety towards the wartime lifestyle that we should have been living all along. We are suddenly refocusing on what is truly important, and that's a blessing. It reminds us that we should not be complacent. Thirdly, it helps us, especially here in the West, identify with the church in the rest of the world which has known this threat and instability all along and has been thriving in the midst of it. Now we can learn how to begin to prepare ourselves to be part of the real church, not the Disney vacation church that we've really been a part of for a couple of hundred years. Fourthly, it presses us to prioritize the discipling of our children in the home because the church building and Melissa and Elena and the Sunday school teachers are not always going to be available. It's up to parents. It's up to husbands and wives to lead their families. Fifthly, it awakens us up to the glorious truth that death has always been contagious and that in the end what matters is our resurrection with Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We are suddenly refocused on the reality that death is near at hand, that we can be taken at any time and that real life is found in Christ Jesus. So there's many ways in which COVID or any oppression can actually help us evaluate and reevaluate how we build up the church, the real church, with discipleship, with teaching, with planting new ministries, with reaching out with the love of God daily and weekly and monthly to see the body of Christ healthy and kingdom focused. What are we doing as we move forward in this environment of pressure and oppression? Very minor compared to most of history, very minor compared to the most of the world. Will we see the church decrease or increase in this time? Will we use COVID as an excuse to eliminate the church from our lives? Or is COVID the awakening we need to grasp the importance of church in our lives? More than ever, we need the body of Christ to be strong, to engage the marginalized and to welcome the searching. They're still out there. They're still coming in. They're still reaching out to us in many ways. We may be on enemy ground, the church is being built on enemy territory, but we possess the hope and the love of the gospel that will prevail. Let's make sure that we never misunderstand the place where Jesus has planted us, and that he's planted us here for a purpose, to grow the church even in the face of oppression and in enemy territory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this teaching that We're up against the gates of Hades. We're up against the powers of darkness. We're up against the curse of this world. We're up against forces that want to prevail against us. This has been true of the church all of long. But that these oppositions, even COVID is a blessing to us to wake us up to the reality and the need that we have for the church. And so Father, I just pray that even this week, we would find ways to make contact with brothers and sisters around us, that we would recommit to serving your kingdom and to the building up of your church. We do not want to see it evaporate in the midst here in Halliburton. We want to see it rise up and see even greater fruit and even greater results. As you've promised us, the church is powerful and no opposition will stand against it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.